Hey everyone, welcome back. It's Hit Factory. I'm Aaron. I'm Carly. And today we're joined by a really, really wonderful guest who has brought us a fantastic film. Really and truly, uh, one of the best that I've seen in a long time. I had never heard of it before he mentioned it. And uh, now it's it's up there with maybe my favorite we've ever done for the show. It's carved into my brain. Carving being a good word there. Yep. Joining us today on the pod is freelance film writer and co-founder of Certified Forgotten. Matt Monagle is here. Matt, thanks so much for being here. Hey, thank you guys for having me. And it's really hard when you know that you have to be introduced. When you guys were like, this movie, I just I wanted to jump in and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you had to say my name and do the whole thing first. So <laughs> thank you guys for having me on the show. I'm very excited to talk about Ravenous. And we appreciate the microphone discipline, Matt, and <laughs> fellow <laughs> a podcaster a here. true professional. Mm-hmm. You uh, now, can you tell people a little bit about Certified Forgotten? Because we came to this recently too, and since interacting with you and uh, and and love the concept and and really enjoy the podcast. But um, if if you want to sell our listeners on it a little bit and and tell them what uh, what the concept is for uh, for that program, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so a friend of mine, Matt Donato, who's a film critic based out of Los Angeles, I'm based out of Austin, Texas. Um, we started that about two years ago as a podcast. So the idea is that, you know, if you spend a lot of time watching films, if you go to a lot of genre film festivals, there's these incredible films that pop up because, you know, every film festival is 20, 30 films deep. A lot of these films you'll see and they they leave a mark on you and then they just never get distribution. Or if they do, they pop up on a platform like 2 TV, which is great, but not exactly something that a lot of people are going to seek out. So we came up with the idea of saying, all right, what if we limited our podcast talking about horror films in particular, but horror films with five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes? It was sort of an arbitrary number that we picked out of the cloud. And we were like, if we do this, can we even sustain this? Is there going to be enough stuff here? And when we started looking for guests, we found pretty quickly that everybody everybody had at least one, usually many films that they're like, oh, nobody talks about this. It has no reviews. It didn't find its audience at all. And then about a year ago, we decided to kind of launch a website under that same theme. So certifiedforgotten.com is a place where we basically provide a platform for writers to do what we sort of describe as like the dissolve thing. They get to go super deep. They get paid to write about films that most publications aren't going to do. So you might find everything from like weird 2000s horror to older horror. But the only common factor there is when you pitch us, it has to be something that you know a bigger site wouldn't take. We really want the weird niche stuff. Um, hmm. And it makes us very happy as editors to be able to to have a site that talks about all this stuff because we've gotten we've gotten some weird movies like some recommendations that just like <laughs> have no business being written about anywhere, and then somebody makes this super passionate case, and you're like, oh, I got to add this to my queue. It's one of the best things about talking about movies and really all media, right? Is and we've been we've talked about this on a previous episode with another guest where it's like the sharing of the thing that you, when you bring something to someone with your own personal story and like your read of it, that in and of itself makes the thing special and enjoyable and sort of gives it life that it wouldn't have elsewhere. So I love, I love the idea that there's, um, that's kind of like the conceit behind the entire site and the project. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's a lot of reasons you start writing about film criticism, creative film podcast, all those good things. But for my money, it's the most fun. It's the most rewarding when you get to basically be a hype man for films that you really love. And like, yes, you can write a terrible review in a thousand words and really just destroy the work of 50 people, like really trash it. But that's never (laughs) as involving and never as rewarding than when you basically get to shove a movie down people's throat and be like, oh, you should watch this. So 
I feel like I have the most fun as a film critic when I get to do that kind of stuff. And Certified Forgotten fits really nicely into that. That's beautiful. I love that. Yeah, I love that. I, I read a tweet from a, another film writer recently who, you know, someone inquired with them and asked, I, I've never heard you shit on a movie before. I've never read like a, like a scathing take from you. And their response was really lovely. It, it, they said, um, every time I shit on a movie, every time I give a negative review, every time I, I spend energy and, and uh, word count saying something negative is a moment that I may be deterring someone from discovering their new favorite movie. Mm. So it's way more fun for me to, to write about things that I really, really love. And sometimes we, we get criticized on the show for, you know, people assume that we hate some of the movies we talk about or that we're talking shit on some of these things. And, and ultimately, the reason we come to them is actually because we really love mm -hmm. them. You know, the, the, the politics aside, the messages of the themes aside, like we love the movie. And then when we investigate it, it's like, oh, here's here's a newfound appreciation for it. And um, yeah, it's just a, it's a really wonderful thing. And you're right. Exactly the reason why we started doing this. So nice to meet a kindred spirit in in the realm of film discovery and film love and uh, and for bringing us into the fold with you uh, as it pertains to today's mm -hmm. movie. Uh, one that neither Carly and I had heard of before. And I was astounded that I hadn't because it features so many people who I love uh, in terms of performers. The film we should say, since we haven't yet, is from 1999. Uh, it's called Ravenous, directed by Antonia Bird. It stars Guy Pierce, uh, Robert Carlyle, Jeffrey Jones, Neil McDonough, Jeremy Davies. The, the cast here is very, very stacked. Um, wonderful, wonderful cast of performers who are all coming off of, well, many of them coming off of some really big hits in the 90s. And uh, just an, an unbelievable horror experience, uh, a scathing sort of social satire. There, there's so much here, Matt. We were, we were kind of riffing in the replies on all of the things that this movie brings to the table. But could you tell us just a little bit about about your love of Ravenous and where it comes from and, and your experience in history with it? Yeah, so this is, um, you know, I joke with my wife that Ravenous is pretty much the Rosetto Stone for my taste in film, but it's, it's actually pretty <laughs> true because if you follow me online, if you've read a lot of stuff and if you see kind of like how the other writers that I interact with joke about me, you know, my reputation as a film critic, especially as a horror critic, is that I like... Uh, period horror. I like wintry horror. I like guilt-driven horror with characters that are consumed with things that have happened in their past. I am a huge fan of bluegrass and like Appalachian folk music in my personal life. That's like my, whatever you're listening to to get yourself hyped up, odds are that I have like, I don't know, Nickel Creek or something on in the background. So it, as I trace all of this back, I think it was this film. I saw this in 1999. I rented it from Blockbuster. Um, didn't get a chance to see it in theaters. I've never seen it in theaters, which I, I kick myself for constantly. But uh, it was just, it was one of those films that I watched it and I guess I was 15, 16 years old at the time. And it just, it hit you, just hit me just the right way. It was, you know, even at that age, I could recognize, even if I didn't understand some of the big themes that were going on behind in the background. But as somebody who was just really starting to come in his own, into his own as somebody that loved horror, you know, the performances were all there. Like Guy Pierce is has been and will continue to be maybe one of my favorite actors just ever. And this was a film that really solidified that for me. Um, there was the dark thread of humor that I'm sure we'll talk about that kind of cuts through the entire movie. There's that soundtrack, which we're definitely going to talk about, which just sort of like hits you in the face in a way that you're not expecting. And yeah, it was, it was just a movie that was unlike anything else that I'd seen. And it felt like the kind of film that you, you take possession of as a fan, you know, 
I did an interview a long time ago or not that long ago with the director of The Empty Man, um, which is another film that's kind of like in the same sort of niche bombed when it came out, sort of finding it's called Audience. And the connection there is he actually, he worked on some of the DVD special features for Ravenous back at the beginning of his career when he was just starting out on Hollywood. And he talked about Empty Man and he said that, you know, the movies that have been kind of kicked around a little bit, dragged through the mud, those are the ones that, that fans really become kind of protective of. And I think for me, it was just when I saw Ravenous and I recognized that this was a film that wasn't getting a lot of love, um, I became kind of protective of it. And over the years, actually, this past week or two has been kind of me rediscovering my love of this film because in horror communities, it's at this point, it's sort of an established property now. Like a lot of horror fans love Ravenous. It's well known in the community. And so, you know, when you think about, oh, I want to write about or I want to get excited about film, the stuff that everybody's already sort of talking about, you kind of set that aside. So I kind of, it had been on my back burner for a while just because in the horror community, it's super well covered. Um, And I have to say, watching you guys kind of come to it with fresh eyes and recognizing that there's still so many new audiences for this film. I was like, oh, shit, this is why. Can I swear? Oh, absolutely. Oh, shit. This is why I love (laughs) this movie so much. And there's still like there's still so many reasons to talk about this film. It is nothing if not uh, an entry point for so many different feelings, like pathways of like we had, you know, while we were watching the movie we were stopping to talk about things just because we had to. But then afterward we were, you know, sort of swimming in all these different ideas. And then yesterday I found myself like I couldn't stop thinking about the movie. And I think about a line and be like, Oh, that's wait, he's like talking about this. And Mm -hmm. it also could be that he's talking about this thing. And, you know, we can get into all the specifics, but all this to say the movies that have the most impact and leave their mark and, carve themselves into my brain are the ones that um just like leave me thinking leave me thinking well beyond you know the the evening that I watched the movie and the other thing that I want to say that I mentioned when I was tweeting about it but I want to talk about it here just for a minute is something I really struggle with in just today's existence as a human being who is, you know, even vaguely aware of what's happening uh, at at any point uh, in any place in the world and also trying to just like get up and do a job and be a person and like enjoy cat content or whatever it is. Like I constantly find myself in this, you know, sort of weird tension of I am craving some sort of escape because... I'm brushing up against things that are horrifying on the news and in my feed all day. And I also feel like I have a duty to engage with those things and make sure that I am an informed part of society and thinking about things and sharing ideas. And I just, I'm always sort of like this, this tension is crystallized in the question each night of what do I feel like watching? Mm -hmm. When I can never quite land on anything that feels right and seems to match sort of where I am emotionally and psychically. And I say all of this because without knowing it, Ravenous just kind of like met me on all the fronts that I was looking for. It felt like a kind of escape. It sort of took me to another place and another time. And, you know, the horror genre is a great way to sort of like dive deeper into humanity and also sort of separate yourself from Mm -hmm. it to a certain extent. But it also left me thinking about really prescient ideas um, that are, you know, related to 
the experiences I'm having and the things that I'm seeing in the world today. Very few pieces of art, very few pieces of media I have found uh, have been able to sort of do that and do it in a way um, that is as thoughtful and strange and unique as ravenous. And I really just appreciated that about it. Um, I know that's not why it was made, but it it seemed to it seemed to meet me in a way that um, I've been craving for some time now, and I think that's pretty special. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but the, the fact that this movie exists at all is a happy accident. Like there, there is, when you learn about the production of this film, this film should not exist. And so the fact that it not only does, but can make you feel those feelings, like it's, it is a beautiful accident is what this movie is. It has like a, a, a beautiful kind of like legacy in terms of its making, the actual content of it. It doesn't toe a line so much as it like juggles multiple things all at once. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just like this incredible final product it, i mean it, it's not unlike you know coming across something while uh like crate digging and and finding that like perfect record mm-hmm. and like putting it on and it, it has that very sort of like lived in broken in classical feel to it where you know that it's just like this like really really special thing that exists and that you found and uh yeah i <laughs> i'm just really thankful that you helped us to find it because it is not a film that would have been on our radar otherwise matt barely Man. squeaked it in with within the window that you guys provide as a 90s podcast i was like i'm getting right into the tail end but it worked no right in. perfect <laughs> and it looks like nothing else made in that mm-hmm. year that's the other thing that's so special about it yeah it i mean it and i, I said this elsewhere but you know it, it is a western it is a, a horror movie but it, it feels so much more indebted to uh classic spaghetti westerns or like you know kind of 70s era more sort of like grindhouse cinema than than anything more polished than that it doesn't feel like you know a sweeping kind of like ford or or peck and pa like epic it it feels like a like a corbucci like spaghetti western or something you know like the great silence with without the snow although there is some snow there's in some here snow. there's some snow <laughs> <laughs> um but before we get too deep into all the details of it we should probably talk a little bit about what the movie is about you know just a brief synopsis of it for for people who are unfamiliar um, or haven't seen it and are are somehow coming to this before watching which if that's the case I, i've never said this on the show before but like stop now and just go watch it and then listen um because it's it's so worth your time watch it twice what the hell it's it's a nice brisk like 98 minutes here uh matt i, I was wondering if maybe you having having so much experience with this could offer a really great Uh, sort of brief synopsis of the film. Yeah. So the film takes place um, right on the tails of the Spanish-American War. Um, A war hero, Captain John Boyd, who is played by Guy Pearce, is banished to Fort Spencer, which is nominally taking place, um, you know, out west, I believe, in in the Californias. And the reason he is banished is because it turns out that he is a war hero in name only. He actually played dead. And part of the big victory that he brought to the, the United States forces is that he laid down, got behind enemy lines as a cadaver, and then got back up and took the fort. So rather than court-martial and kill him, which is what the United States military thought about doing, they sent him out in the middle of nowhere in this fort that exists with a bunch of other misfit soldiers, um, overeducated under physical soldiers, you know, kind of brain dead jocks as well, just sort of like all the worst dregs of the United States military. And this fort, this group of unlikely uh, comrades comes together because somebody stumbles into their fort one night, um, a Calhoun played by Robert Carlyle, and says that he was part of an expedition, um, a cross-country expedition that got lost in the woods. 
It's very, very Donner Party-y. And he says that their their <laughs> group turned immediately to cannibalism and that there are still survivors out there and that they need to go save them. So um, Guy Pierce and his little merry band gather together. They let Calhoun be their guide and they go up into the mountains to try and rescue people. And shit goes sideways from there is what I will say for the second half of that film. <laughs> so yeah, it is. If you if you need a touch point, it is very heavily indebted to the Donner Party and also a lot of the Donner Party mythology that's come out of that as well. There's also a, a ton of talk here of obviously classic indigenous legends of the Wendigo, mm -hmm. um, which which I know is uh, a starting point for other horror films um, that that take that in in different directions. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it it like I said is is somewhat of like a a, a cannibal movie. It's also a vampire movie in a lot of ways in its last act. Um, it, it has this, this sort of, it, it bears the mark of so many different styles of horror. And it, you probably are, are more versed in cannibal Westerns than I am, <laughs> Matt. But the only other one that comes to mind is, is from very recently, which is uh, S. Craig Zoller's Bone Tomahawk, which coincidentally also features uh, David Arquette <laughs> missing, <laughs> meeting a, a very grisly end mm -hmm. at, at the, hands of in this some some more uh you know indigenous cannibals and and this one i think is a little bit different in, in the way that it subverts that idea of of the civilized and the and the savage uh in in terms of who who it targets as as the specific forebears of those particular ideals mm -hmm. um but yeah it this one just goes man i <laughs> i just keep coming back to it it's it's a beautiful film um and and I guess we can talk a little bit about the production of it now uh, before we get too deep into some of the themes. But uh, you're you're right; it's just it's such a happy accident here. It started as as the the directorial work of a and I'm gonna a Macedonian filmmaker, correct? Mm -hmm. Milcho Manchevsky is that his That's name? Correct. Milko Manchevsky. Yeah. I think it's Milcho. I think he pronounces it Milcho. And he's coming off of uh, of a Oscar nomination or an Oscar win, Matt. Nomination, I think. But yeah, I mean, by and large, supposed to be. You know this this prestige director and and a, a knockout cast here. Obviously, you know Carlisle coming from uh, Train Spotting and The Full Monty, and just you know winning some awards for that. Guy Pierce had already done at this point uh, L.A. Confidential and was kind of a household name. Uh, even Jeremy Davies, you know, had had just done Private Ryan the year prior. So uh, you know there there are some people here. Jeffrey Jones, who's always kind of stalwart, um, you know, in an, an unfortunate person. Yes. Um, to to talk about just in terms of his his private life, which has been made very public, um, you can look it up if you want to. But um, yeah, I, I mean the the cast here is is pretty knockout, and uh, and it just didn't work. I guess it, there there was something that was happening there that was really sort of throttling or or curbing the the creative output of of these people. Largely, it it seems because of the the studio. But um, Matt, I, you probably have a little bit more familiarity with with the exact backstory there. Would would you care to care to enlighten us? Yeah, I think it was. I mean, this was by all accounts a really difficult shoot in that um, you know they went on location in I believe it was um, Slovakia at the time uh, to do a lot of this up in the mountains. They had done a couple of different made a couple of different decisions about location shooting that meant that it was basically just going to be miserable for the cast, airdropping in supplies and making them hike up to the middle of nowhere to get the cinematography, which in my opinion is totally worth it. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> and it actually, the original director, Milko or Milcho, had argued and fought really heavily with Laura Ziskin, who was the Fox executive at the time. Um, and the way the story goes is that she brought in 
a, another director. She brought in somebody, uh, a filmmaker named Raja Gosnell, who uh, you might know as the director of Never Been Kissed. And she basically showed up to set one day, fired Milcho, said Gosnell's the guy now. And um, according to the, the DP, um, Anthony Richmond, the turning point there is that he started to work with both Pierce and Carlisle, and they had asked him for direction on, do we do you want to do it this way or do you want to do it that way? And Gosnell had said, uh, I, I don't care. I don't give a shit. Do it however you want it. And so the two leads were basically like, yeah, this isn't working for us, threatened to walk. Um, and it was only because Carlisle had at that point worked several times with Antonia Bird, um, a British filmmaker who he'd worked with on Priest and a few other films, that he basically was able to flash a little bit of clout and say, all right, you bring in Antonia, she's going to fix this or this is not going to happen. Um, so if you listen, one of the things that I did before this recording, which I hadn't done in years is went back and listened to, um, the director commentary track on the DVD, um, Antonio Bird and Damon Alburn sit down and they talk a little bit about the production. It's really interesting if, if you're into kind of the behind the scenes stuff and she had a week, you know, to, to do production. Basically she had a week between when she decided to do this and when she was going to fly to the set that was already, I believe two weeks into shooting and they made it work on their third director um, in a location that none of them had picked with scouting and casting that neither the, the DP nor the director had had any input on. They made it work. So unfortunately, Antonio Bird is no longer with us. She died a few years after that. But this is like, mm -hmm. if you go and Google interviews with Robert Carlyle today, he will still talk about how incredible it was that she was able to show up and make this happen. Um, just a complete sign of respect from a longtime co collaborator. She does an incredible job and draws out maybe my favorite Carlisle performance. And that's, I think, saying something considering just how over the top and uh, just brilliant in all his excesses he is in stuff like Train Spotting, um, how funny he is and in, in, in the full Monty. But but this, that that moment where, you know, they, they are very cinematically and orchestrally kind of telling the, the and recounting the story of his Donner Party-esque experience, you know, going through the, the mountains and and uh, this Colonel Ives, you know, kind of victimizing a lot of them and, and some of them meeting grisly ends and him escaping is five minutes of just pure cinema. Mm -hmm. It is brilliant. And he is so good in it. And, and you know, he's, he's quivering and, and clearly frightened and, and just putting on a hell of a show here. He's, he's doing a really, really, really great job. And, and I think that it's, it's very evident that, that he and, and the filmmaker had had this sort of great professional relationship and, and were able to draw um, some real magic out of both of those. And then things got out of hand. I ate sparingly. Others did not. The meat did not last us a week and we were soon hungry again, only this time our hunger was different. Boar. And that was, uh, that was the first scene that they actually shot um, after Bird showed up, apparently, because it was such oh, a Carlisle-heavy wow. sequence that she was able to, they, they did that kind of to establish trust with the rest of the cast, I guess, because the two of them had such a good mm -hmm. working relationship that the rest of the cast was able to watch her and Carlisle work, and then that was able to kind of build some trust with the director for the people that didn't know her. So that whole thing, he, they did it as like one prolonged, they chopped it up, of course, but he did it as one, one prolonged take a couple of different times, and it kind of... When you think about where that sits in the film, but how important that was to the production, that's kind of like that is that's the heart of the film is that sequence right there. 
everything that works from the film sort of flows out from that, both narratively and, and also behind the scenes as well. The thing I love about that particular sequence is something that I think I could say about the entire film that um, I credit Antonia Bird with. And that is that that sequence in particular, it's um, totally arresting. You're captivated the entire time. Yes, but it doesn't sort of languish in any of it. I found that the way that they edited that particular recounting of what happened to be like pretty efficient um, Mm -hmm. and making me feel sort of a lot with not a whole lot of time and not, you know, a ton of um, you're not sort of like luxuriating in the horror. And I also felt like that particular retelling and, and just that sequence was the first kind of part of the movie that for me sort of kicked me into this like psychic plane of my experiencing the movie where, you know, I wasn't just watching and feeling and thinking. I was also sort of exploring the ideas of, or exploring sort of the spaces psychically that one would need to be in to cannibalize another person. And it's kicked off in that story that Calhoun is telling them. And I found that Antonia Bird and, you know, of course, the the actors have a lot of credit for this, too. But I found that she does a really she's a really great job, unlike any other film I think I've ever watched, of keeping me there the whole time, sort of keeping me in this place where I'm aware of the the kind of psychic rifts that are happening. I'm thinking about them, feeling them potentially myself, sort of empathically, and also watching the characters feel them. And that's just a level of filmmaking that um, I don't even really have words to describe. And it's another thing that made this movie so singular for me, um, because I was really feeling it uh, in a different, on a different level. And it's totally, you're right, it is kicked off by that scene. That scene is the heart of the film and really the the one that set me in the place sort of emotionally, psychically, spiritually to experience the rest of the film. Yeah. And I think um, I'll, I'll credit for that, I think, goes to Alburn as well um, for his contributions to that part of the score. Because I, I remember, I think that's for everybody, that's the moment where, where you, the score hits you, where you realize like, because mm-hmm. in the beginning, there's some good soundtrack stuff and you're aware of it and you're like, oh, this is really cool. But like the way that it sort of builds um, from this like repeated kind of like folksy riff and then it starts to get darker and more droney and the sound kind of swells in as he's telling the story. You know, it's it's that's the moment, I think, where you realize that this, the soundtrack is kind of operating not in this traditional classical space where it's like, all right, this is period music, but in something that feels more contemporary and darker. And that with the work that Bird is doing, with the way that the scene is cut together, like if, if that if you don't know by the end of that sequence that this is the movie for you, then you might as I mean, I hate to tell people to turn it off. But if you're not hooked by the end of his journey, then you can probably turn it off because the rest of it isn't going to work for you either. It's so riveting. And you're, I mean, you're both tapping into this thing that I noticed about the film, which is it, it is visceral, it's gory, but it, but it isn't the part that is it, not, not to the point where I find it uh, repellent at all either. You know, like so, so much of, of the, the visceral nature of it, so much of the intensity of it comes from this really sort of psychological space from this really sort of um, from, from the, from the evocation of those feelings through, some of the visual elements through the score, through this kind of combination of all those sort of cinematic little pieces, just seasoning everything. And I, I, you know, I, there were very few moments here where I felt like the violence or, or, or the, the viscera and, and, and the blood 
was the thing that was actually making me respond. Um, it, it was more about the implication of those things. And there are some like really violent moments here, you know, I mean, Guy Pierce starts the film basically like, uh, you know, drinking a, a couple pints of somebody's blood from a, a pile of carcasses and, you know, people get cut open and, and, uh, you know, the, the, the conclusion here is with, you know, two of our main characters pinched together in a bear trap. Like it, it's, it's not uncreative and it's not un uh, evocative with its violence, but, but it, I didn't find it off putting. I, I found the, the implication of those things. I, I felt the, the more psychological elements of what was being told to me, what was being expressed. And that incredible score, of course, like just adding to that sensation of, of dissonance and, and just being constantly unsettled. And I think the film does that throughout, you know, we've, we've mentioned the score a couple of times already. Um, Michael Nyman, uh, one of the composers here who gets uh, top billing in the film, but on the soundtrack itself, Damon Albarn gets, gets top billing as a collaborator here who, for those who are unfamiliar, is a, a very famous musician, most notable for uh, being the front man and principal songwriter of Blur. He's now uh, basically the sole member of Gorillaz, minus mm -hmm. his collaborators. Um, and I'm I'm a enormous Blur fan. So for his his name to come up here was really exciting. And then as the movie kept going and, and as I reflected on the way that the music is used, made perfect sense. Makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, it... It is. It's it's one of those things that is so sort of like at times this sort of swelling, unsettling, gorgeous kind of thing that's always there in the background, and other times this really uh, tonally dissonant thing, like mm -hmm. like like moments that are are in a in a more traditionally scored film going to be done with with a, a little bit uh, less creativity here, just explode with energy. Um, I, I think particularly about the 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 sequence of pursuit where uh, Reich and Boyd. Guy Pearson and Neil McDonough's characters are are chasing after Carlisle um, at this point after he's he's slain the rest of the, the the group that's gone out into the wilderness, and it's it it is it's it's this very like folksy almost kind of like fiddle in tune. There's these sort of yelps and and hollers over it, and it is brilliant. It, it's 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 nothing like what I would have anticipated it being. It, it doesn't sound like anything else, and is just like perfect for adding that sense of dismay for that sense of confusion and, and mm -hmm. that subjectivity that's really necessary it, it, it's just a brilliant brilliant score yeah and it was um i can't remember the track breakdown I, I chased it down years ago because i was super curious about it something like 14 and 10 is the breakdown between nyman and tracks and alburn tracks they literally wrote their own things kind of separately and then pushed the soundtrack up against each other they were collaborating and sharing stuff but it wasn't it wasn't one of them wrote it and the other one came in and did notes it was really kind of like one person did their own thing the other person did their own mm -hmm. thing and mm -hmm. I think, you know, as, as somebody who who fell in love with Gorillaz years before, actually, Blur was the last piece of the album puzzle that I came to. I listened to the soundtrack. I fell in love with Gorillaz. I realized those two were connected. And then I was like, oh, this guy also has a band called Blur. I should look that up, right? That's a, that's a common path for most people to, to be introduced to Blur. But, Absolutely. you know, as somebody that kind of has been, you know, gone back and looked, especially, you know, the, the original Gorillaz album and some of the collaborations he was doing, the Deltron 3030 stuff around that time. It really feels like a, a person who doesn't know that they should tone it down. And the way that that kind of plays out in the soundtrack, like all of his stuff is so loud and it clashes at times. Clashes is a weird word. I don't think it clashes, but it, it runs counter to what you would think that the orchestration for a scene should be. And instead, Auburn's like, look what I can do. 
And it worked so well because of that, because I think if you got somebody who was a little bit more seasoned or who was a little less confident, who had a little less clout in their career, they might've come up with something that was this, but a little watered down. And it's just because Alburn was in sort of his, I'm a genius phase coming off of blur and going into gorillas that he came in and did something that is genius. That is like, unlike anything you'd ever hear in a soundtrack, it's, it really, it's, it's such a great thing. And I don't think anybody other than him could have done it for a variety of reasons. I completely agree with you. And you absolutely nailed it when you said that Alburn is a lot of the reason that you're sort of set off into this sort of psychic exploration and the the psychic landscape of the film. And I was talking about this with Aaron this morning. I was sort of ruminating on the fact that the the music itself, and I think a lot of the Alburn stuff, the, the stuff I will assume is Alburn related because of how it sounds, that has that kind of like music box quality, sort of mechanical, synthy, but also kind of anachronistic, like out of time. That stuff, that, that music was the, the, the stuff that sort of pushed me into a space where I felt sort of better able to, I don't know, potentially experience or feel or think about the things that the characters were feeling. And I think mm-hmm. it's because he's doing exactly what you're saying. He's pushing up against these sequences in ways that we as a trained movie going audience are not expecting. And so he's the dissonant is a right word. And I also found myself sort of feeling kind of unhinged because of the music. It sort of puts you in this place where you're hearing something that makes you feel a certain way, but then you're watching, you know, something that makes you feel another way. And it's just brilliant. It makes for a brilliant and totally arresting watching experience Mm -hmm. in a very different way than say like a John Williams type, right? Where, you know, you sort of expect all the traditional cues of, of gravitas. And, and I just, I'm really, really glad that we found out that it was, that it was Alburn. It just, it makes me happy. And retroactively, I was like, oh, that kind of sounds like sweet song. And Mm -hmm. yeah, this, this has a park Mm -hmm. life element Mm -hmm. to it. Like I was going back and hearing a lot of his music once I learned that it was him. And that just made the film that much more special. Yeah. It really, it shows you what, uh, what brilliant people can do when they're using their clout uh, for, for, to really solid ends. You know, I, I think of it as being really kind of, synchronous with the story we we already heard about carlisle bringing in weight yeah just pulling weight and and bringing in someone like bird and and you know using using it for good instead of evil and saying like i'm gonna bring in this brilliant collaborator i'm gonna bring in this this sort of singular talent and with alburn sort of being like i know this doesn't work but but i am who i am i I make this music and, and he's there for a reason already and put in that place where he has that kind of influence and has that kind of opportunity to do something really off kilter that it just it makes it so special it's um it, it's all just this brilliant sort of all the puzzle pieces fitting um even even if they have to kind of like force them in a little mm-hmm. bit and it just comes out to this like really really incredible finished product yeah it's it's rare that you can ever say that your taste at the age of 16 is the same thing. There's not a lot of things I liked or loved when I was 16 <laughs> that are still as important to me as they were, but the soundtrack to Ravenous has been my favorite soundtrack for 20 years and it has not wavered for even a day. So it's I just totally believe it. Just a testament to, to how fun, how fun it is and how much you're, you, you know, 
how much you wish you could get this anywhere. It's it's only still only available on CD and nobody's ever bothered to put it out on vinyl. And the day that somebody puts it out on vinyl, I'm going to buy like 18 different copies of it and just give it to everybody. <laughs> Be like, you need to own this. Here you go. You're welcome. Philanthropy. Yeah. It's going to come like with with a casing that has like real blood in it mm-hmm. or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, Perfect. for sure. You swirl it around, put it up next to the light. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have to say, you know, I'm outing myself with two fervent horror lovers here, but I am a person who uh, has a hard time with gore. I just like get very emotional about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, Aaron, when you were remarking that the the thing that actually felt sort of most affecting to you, most terrifying was not the blood and the gore, but sort of the psychological implications. I think that's precisely why I was so entranced with this movie. I'm normally a person who like can't watch a stabbing or like, you know, the twist of a knife or any sort of like creative wounding of a person. Like I'm not, I'm, I, I have a very uh, shallow stomach for it. And yet I could not take my eyes off of this film. Literally, I couldn't remove my gaze from the movie. And I think it's because I was really in this place of experiencing the movie, not just visually, but, but feeling it and thinking about it and sort of, um, I don't want to, you know, beat a dead horse, but like, that's an unfortunate metaphor i just realized um <laughs> but um no horses were uh, harmed in the making of this movie no horses were harmed in the making of this movie i um had i had a flash of a horse head when i said that um but it it really did keep me in this psychic space that that is where um i was even as you're watching these really intensely gory horrifying images and they don't you know there's not a whole lot of like you see a person eating a person, but they're, they push up right against it enough to, to have you, you know, sort of be able to visualize it. But one of the most horrifying um, images conjured in my mind was actually one that never showed itself on screen. And it's when Calhoun is recounting that the first thing that they ate of the man who was killed first uh, was his legs. And he talks about this party that he was with and he went to go fish and they uh, or capture something. And he came back and they had eaten this man who had died of malnourishment supposedly. And what he returned to was the sight of this man's legs sort of roasting on a spit over the fire. And I just saw those legs mm-hmm. in my mind, like glistening and turning and like feet and all of it. And just that, image in particular was for whatever reason just really really in stark relief for me and it never showed itself in the movie and I bring that up because I think that's another you know that's another great example of what we're talking about with this film which is that it's able to do a lot more than just what it's showing you and and playing for you. It's it really has you experiencing the movie in so many different ways. And the fact that I was able to watch it and not just watch it, but keep my eyes glued to the screen, I think says a lot too. Yeah, there's it's it's worth noting, of course. It's like I think it's still one of the first things you'll find on IMDb if you look up the trivia for this. But Antonia Bird, Damon Albert, and Guy Pierce are all vegetarians. And so watching oh, wow. watching the film 
the 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 most grotesque stomach turning scene in the movie for me is the opening scene where it's a bunch of soldiers that are sitting around a table just eating super super raw meat and it's really it's funny that for all the violence that happens it is what is coded as a non-violent scene that that feels the most unnerving it's also worth noting and this feels like maybe a nice parallel because i know you guys just did an episode with brianna ziegler about existence that this is an incredibly horny film like and the violence (laughs) the violence that does happen on screen is incredibly sexualized it's all like meaningful close-up eye contact slow penetration of knives and stuff so it's it's never it's never something that feels cold and inhuman it always feels sensual which is a weird thing to say about characters getting stabbed and sliced and cut so that that adds like a different tone because I, I sat down to watch this again with my wife who's never seen it before and i said i'm gonna have to tell you to look away at a bunch of times and you know i was surprised at the end of it with the exception of having to reset one broken femur she was like yeah that actually <laughs> that wasn't that bad at all and she's not she's not somebody that likes horror either so I think there is something about the sensual nature of the violence that sort of undercuts that a little bit for a lot of audiences. Yes, we should talk about the horniness. We should talk about the horniness because, you know, you mentioned, Matt, uh, maybe just in in tweet that there's a lot of queer coding in this in this film. Um, And and you're right, Mm -hmm. (laughs) first and foremost. But I mean, it is it's, it's all very sensual, like. Even even the acts of the implication of violence or or the desire, you know, like the, the moment where Carlisle is is pulled off of Jeremy Davis in, in the tent um, and Jeremy Davis just keeps screaming. He was licking me. Mm-hmm. He was licking me. Um, Sick man it, outside. Mr. Cajon. Yes. You come outside. Outside. You can sleep outside. You... Boy, you too. Stay there. Sick man outside. Sick man, Sick man outside. outside. <laughs> yes, there's this. There's definitely this kind of uh, undercurrent of this sort of carnal sin and lust that seems like it's it's uh, invading, sort of, and penetrating that kind of puritanical ideal and spirit of of the time and the era, of course, but also just America in the '90s in general. You know, this sort of like kind of coding of everything as this sort of homogenous sort of heteronormative thing. So much of this here, it feels like transgression, even in its its slightest states like that. Even, even you know, the, the sound of smacking and licking on a body mm-hmm. in the dark. Yeah, it is a, it is, I mean, Robert Carlyle's character, Calhoun or Ives, is sort of a horny cannibal Jesus. That's sort of how the film positions him <laughs> a little bit with regards to the other members of the cast. And I think you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, you you mentioned Aaron earlier about the the vampire thing, which is really the way like this is a cannibal, but it, it's a vampire movie. It's a it's a mm-hmm. twist on a vampire movie. It follows the logic of a vampire movie where you indoctrinate others and then they gain powers and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that because of that, it's playing more in that idea of transgressions and taboo and what happens when you transcend one series of taboos or one set of social morals, you know, that sort of opens the table for you to do all of them across the board. So of course, you're going to have this Lothario character who, you know, wants to consume literally and metaphorically the men that he meets in his life and is in his own mind, this sort of Christ-like figure. I mean, that you could rip that from an Anne Rice novel and be like, that's a totally fitting character for that too. So Mm. it is, it is, it is horny on Maine in a lot of different ways, um, but but it but it works. It's 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 enough of a subtext that I don't think, well, barely a subtext, but it it allows the relationships between the characters to kind of push and pull them in some interesting ways, and it lets Carlisle open up in a way that I we talked about earlier. You know, he tends to play more cold, 
you know, one dimensional villains. Train spotting is kind of an example. He did a Bond villain around this time too. And here mm-hmm. he's the most charismatic person in the movie. Uh, he is lust incarnate. He is desire and greed incarnate. And it makes him, it makes that character a lot of fun to play with for him, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. By the end, when he has sort of um, converted Hart, Jeffrey Jones character, and, and is in the process of trying to convert Guy Pierce, he switches out of, you know, his, his sort of like battle fatigues and his like Confederate military kind of uniform. And they put him in this like very sort of anachronistic, almost like Victorian era, like robe mm-hmm. and his hair is slicked back and they make his, his you know, this, this pallor is like kind of different. Like his, his coloring is different. He's, and, and it's not even like paler, like we would normally see with a vampire. It almost feels more rosy or, or tanned. Flush. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's, he's very flush in it. And, and you, you get the sense of him as this, um, yeah, just of, of this like very physical, very sensual kind of kind of character that I am not used to seeing him play. Um, so it was a, it was an excellent subversion there. There's even you know this this conversation that uh, that I rewatched again this morning, um, and and Carly did too, where Carlisle is is trying to convert Guy Pierce, uh, and 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 telling him you know like there's there's no courage in resisting it. It just you have to acquiesce. You know that's the real courage, giving in. And there, I mean, there's certainly a read of it to be made about the more manifest destiny, you know, settler colonial capitalist elements of the movie, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about too. But in that moment uh, is, I think, when that uh, that more subtle kind of queer coding, that more subtle sort of sensuality really, really came came forward for me where he's like, you know, o- almost kind of trying to coax out this person to like live a truth that he's already embodying. Um, while he's trying to remain closeted or, or, or you know, more puritanically sort of uh, subduing this this lust or or this desire that he has, and he's just kind of telling him like, just give in, just 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 be yourself, you know, live live your truth. Almost he says. It's a very steamy scene. There's another point when they're face to face with one another, and I believe it's when Carlisle is perhaps mocking him with like his cut hand and trying to sort of lure him to to lick it and I completely agree with you Matt that the I found the kind of like just below the surface tension of you know the sort of sexual the sexual chemistry that's a light in the movie to be the thing that made that exchange so captivating because I kept expecting him to lick him and I I wanted it like I wanted it to happen and this goes back to this idea of really experiencing the movie sort of not just as a passive viewer but like being invested emotionally physically in the movie itself and we should talk about that manifest destiny speech because there's so much there mm-hmm. Yeah, it's maybe my my favorite, you know, few few minutes of the film. Um Carlisle even says the words manifest destiny. That's how he starts the speech. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um I mean there there's a lot of this going on in the film. Uh of course the the more sort of cannibalistic nature of of these characters, you know, is is sort of an, an extreme interpretation of this manifest destiny settler colonial mindset of this idea of sort of, um, I mean, I'll, I'll use the word again, cannibalizing resources, cannibalizing people, you know, in, in the sense of, of slavery or, or in the, you know, the, the massacre of, of indigenous populations of uh, sort of 
you know, scalding and, and terraforming the earth and extracting all of its resources, all of these things that are sort of a pursuit and drive of capitalist America, especially during this era of westward expansion on, come out here and and are 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 shown and 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 kind of put in in parallel with this literal eating of of people, eating of flesh. Um, he he even has this line, Carlisle, where he says, and I'm, I'm probably going to butcher it now, but something along the lines of, you know, in April people will come through here seeking riches, seeking seeking gold, and we'll have our pick. And we're going to be civil about it. You know, we don't want to divide families, mm-hmm. but we're, but we're going to be very selective about who we choose. We won't kill indiscriminately. He says. Right. Mm-hmm. He he. We're we're going to we're going to be selective about who we eat and who gets to eat. Manifest destiny. Westward expansion. It'll come April. We'll all start again. Thousands of gold-hungry Americans will travel over those mountains on the way to new lives, passing right through here. We won't kill indiscriminately. No, selectively. Good God. We don't want to break up families. People are not stupid, Ives. Really? You'll get caught. Well, if it's just the two of us. Of course, with no wish to recruit everyone, we have enough mouths to feed as it is. <laughs> we just need a home. And this country is seeking to be whole. Stretching out its arms and consuming all it can. And it kind of positions them as all of a sudden, you know, more of these sort of uh, these these vestiges of power in that society, who are preying on people who are desperate, who are who are talking about, of course, this idea of a sort of a zero sum capitalism, sort of this this uh, idea of of eat or be eaten, or rather, as as Carlyle says, eat or die. I'm butchering it now, but I can't. I'm trying to remember exactly what he says here. Oh, he says the line where. He says, you know, of course, we're not trying to convert everybody. There's already too many hungry mouths to feed. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, it it was the moment here where uh, I I looked over at Carly and I just said, holy shit. (laughs) Because I I think when we initially, you know, came to this film, I was not expecting as overtly a political sentiment to be in the film. Um, And then when it when it struck, you know, beyond just the point of of mere interpretation into a place where it's like, no, the filmmaker here and the screenwriter seem to very explicitly be saying this. Um, I was, I was really wowed. Yeah. It it feels like a film that really benefits from the majority of its talent, not being American because it has a, it has a perspective on manifest destiny. It has a perspective on the Western mythos and the Western as a genre film, you know, over the last century that I think sort of challenges and inverts a lot of what we sort of take for granted and watching it again, especially for the first time in years, you know, A, I'll say that I would I would love to to read a piece of film criticism about this by an indigenous writer, because I think there's a lot of mm-hmm. stuff there that I don't feel comfortable commenting on that, you know, I I feel I feel there are threads that that probably are richer or, you know, opportunities that they might have missed, mistakes, kind of like there's a lot that they do with the the two siblings, um, the two indigenous siblings that kind of 
work in the fort and you know provide the the impetus for the Wendigo myth. They're the ones that explain kind of the rules um, to Guy Pierce's character as well. But the thing that does stand out, you know, and and kind of marks this as different than a lot of westerns that I've done before, is that that hunger is not turned externally. That when Calhoun or Ives talks about who they're going to feed on, you know, typically in the westerns, it's a manifest destiny. You know, we're going to go out and we're going to retain the wild west and we're going to kill the Indians and do all of that stuff. That thankfully westerns started to pick up in the seventies, and they were like, maybe this isn't such a great idea. And this sort of feels like a natural evolution of this, where that hunger was always going to turn inwards. They're not thinking about preying on what's out there. They're already thinking about what they can eat from, you know, the civilization that people are coming from and flooding from. So it makes it a really interesting sort of, I don't know if it's an inversion or just a natural progression of the way that the Western genre is good is like that appetite was always going to turn back in. You know, these institutions of power were always going to turn back around and try and eat everybody that was coming West, you know, literally or metaphorically. And it's, it's a it's a shame that there that this film sort of stands alone among westerns. I think that we're trying to move what the western can be a little bit forward. I've been watching a lot of Taylor Sheridan stuff recently because mm-hmm. um, he's a really interesting, you know, really interesting filmmaker. He has his problems, but stuff like Wind River, Hell or High Water, Sicario is is very interested in a lot of the same ideas of what is the American West in contemporary society, and mm-hmm. just sort of that. That approach, that that shift away from the individual to the institutional, I think is something that Ravenous really has its finger on here too. Completely. I think the point about um, you know, really wanting an indigenous perspective is um is a good one. We were kind of talking about the same thing this morning. Remembering too that Barbara, is that her name? Uh Brenda, I think is her name. No. Martha? Martha. 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 Brenda? Martha. We're both wrong. There was okay. an uh. Um, there was an uh. There was an uh. Um <laughs> Martha you know, at the end, she she comes back and she sees she sees the boys in the bear trap and she knows what's happened and she turns and leaves. And Aaron and I were talking about that and sort of talking about the fact that both her and her brother are the people that uh, this crew goes to when they need help. Right. Boyd comes to Martha at a certain point and is like, like, what do I do? How do I kill this thing? Mm-hmm. Like, help me. Tell me. Um, and she's basically like you don't like you give your life that's 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 what this is about so they they have the wisdom which is not new to the genre right that's sort of been there for a long time but the fact that she leaves is interesting because that's where i think this also speaks to your argument about this being sort of an evolution or sort of you know another step in the direction of of where this this genre was going um because i took that to mean what we know to be true about the indigenous populations um, is that they always understood how to exist in harmony with their surroundings and their environment. And their her leaving is, you know, this sign that like, I'm not going to stay here to be slaughtered and I'm not going to be a part of this, but also I don't need you. Right. Like mm-hmm. she, she goes out on her own and we know for all intents and purposes, she's going to be fine. And I, it's a small detail in the film, but I loved it. I also loved that, like, she didn't die because I was sort of expecting, I was like, is she going to get caught in, in, you know, the crosshairs of all of this violence? She's covered in blood when she leaves, but, but she doesn't die. And, and I really liked that. I liked that that was a nice touch, particularly that it's the female character that leaves. And, you know, the other thing that I really loved about this speech from Carlisle at sort of the 
the apex of the movie, there's the sexual undertones. There are, you know, there's the commentary on settler colonialism and capitalism and the like. And there's also this this through line of of kind of like rabid individualism, which is the thing that, you know, makes America run and and was the driving force of a lot of a lot of our gluttony and our all of our other carnal sins outward into um, into the countryside. And he or Hart, maybe it's Hart, at some point says, you know, it's lonely being a cannibal. And on the one hand, you're like, oh, no, they're like making a collective of like people that eat people. But it's not. It's it's an entirely individualistic pursuit, even even when you're bringing others into the fold. And it just made me think about the fact that that's what's required to be successful in this system is just rabid individualism. You have to be alone. You have to be thinking about your own survival and no one else's. And even when you're doing the work of, you know, uh, a collective in some form or another, you're still all only after your own survival. And that I feel like is a through line that runs, you know, under, under all of these systems that we're talking about. And I think the thing that I found myself ruminating on after that speech in particular, and as I found myself thinking about the film, you know, in the days after I had watched it, is how much the film sort of makes you confront and really tears apart this shiny, pristine image of westward expansion that we learned in school. And I went to public school in California. So we learned about the missions. And uh, when I became an adult and slightly more radicalized, like realized how wrong all of that was that mm. I was taught. And we were sort of told like, we were here to, you know, civilize these people. And, um, and I remember seeing pictures of indigenous, um, indigenous men who were like before and after and just like really being horrified of what had happened to them when their culture was stripped away and we had quote unquote civilized them. And I'm, I'm getting to a point here. My point is that the, the film really made me think about and confront how barbaric the act of civilizing is. And it's perfectly crystallized in this moment when they're all sitting around the fire and Boyd is faced with the decision to eat the man stew or die from his wounds that Carlisle has inflicted on him. And Hart says, isn't this all civilized? And I just kept thinking about how insanely violent all of this civilizing and this sort of like, we're bringing technology, we're bringing progress outward and inward we're realizing potential that hasn't been realized and just how just how barbaric and savage all of that was and that to me is one of the most arresting things that the movie leaves imprinted on me just like rewriting all of the stuff that you know we've learned in our public education and mm -hmm. i think it's beautiful it's just really really effective and and i can't stop thinking about it yeah it's Aaron, I hate, I love hate that you brought up on uh, Tomahawk earlier because I think, <laughs> I think, well, I think if you compare it and, you know, just look no further than the way that the indigenous characters in these two films are treated and Bone Tomahawk oh, is like, what is it? Five years old. So it's a contemporary modern that benefits from all. And 
there are there's one indigenous character who is modernized, wears a suit, and the rest are like savages that live off the land. And you think that like these are still the stories that we're telling, you know, now. And I I love Bone Tomahawk. I think it's a it's a fun, you know, midnight pulpy kind of western. But like it it gets shit wrong. It like and consciously intentionally portrays its characters in, in sort of a way that. Uh, goes exactly to the points you were saying about civilization and, and you know, that civilization is this good, powerful thing versus kind of the way that those indigenous characters are portrayed in Ravenous. You know, I can't, I can't attest to whether one is objectively good or, you know, how good the portrayal of characters is in Ravenous. All I know is that it's a far fucking cry better than the way that it's in Bone Tomahawk. And it's just, it's a night and day kind of thing that even the Westerns that are coming out now are still falling into these sort of traps. And I guess to me, it, again, it comes back to that outsider perspective, like I'll take a little bit of a distance from America and sort of the stories that we've grown up t- telling ourselves, mm-hmm. this is how probably a British person would look at our relationship with indigenous populations. They would be like, yeah, that wasn't great. And it's not a good relationship. And maybe these are different characters that they don't have to reinforce the same kind of stuff. It's always sobering when somebody outside of your country makes a movie about your country, always looking and go, oh, okay. So that's how the rest of the world sees us. Yes. Yeah, I I mean S. Craig Zoller, you know, for as much as I love all of his movies, all of them, yeah. is 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 an incredibly reactionary director. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, he's he's like he's one of the few sort of like maybe like neoconservative filmmakers who ends up still making like really really great entertainment. But it, it, no, it 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 totally plays into that that uh, indigenous like savage uh, cliche mm-hmm. in in a way that this film is is so ready to uh, to separate and distance itself from and it's really refreshing. And you know that that idea of the outsider perspective here is one that is not just in the production of the film, you know, not just in the actors portraying the roles, not just in, you know, Antonia Bird being a British filmmaker coming to to source material that is very distinctly American, but also noting that like Carlisle as the choice for this character being very clearly a first generation Scottish immigrant mm-hmm. is another one of those same kind of perspectives of, of, of sort of saying, you know, these these are outsiders, even among us, who are buying into what is, you know, sort of intrinsically what we would consider like an American value. The promise. Right. The promise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, thinking on it now, it's just that that line that Carlisle says about not separating families just has so much potency in terms of like the conversation, of course, you know, in, in the era, but but even today in terms of our immigration policy and the way that we treat American borders, the way we're selective about who belongs and who doesn't and, you know, who gets who gets the opportunity to climb to the top and who gets stepped on is so potent and and so just, I don't know, it's wowing. It's it's incredible to to hear it. And I, and I don't think that you know, I, there are two different kind of ideas going on here that I actually think work really well in tandem. You were talking a little bit about Sheridan's movies and the idea of this movie sort of approaching something institutional rather than individual in terms of like kind of the the, the Western perspective. And we're also simultaneously talking about sort of the atomization and individualization of the American and, and, and of the American ideal of that perspective. I think those two things obviously go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And the way that they're conveyed in the film makes perfect sense of that. You know, here is already these people with something of an elite status, with all the power, with all of the capacity for for victimization, for all the capacity for just bleeding the rest of of humanity of of, of the resources dry, being the people who get to convince others to do the same, the people who drive the narrative, the people who drive the perspective, and the people who who build this this system. 
um, where where even when you're on the inside, you know, the, the film ends with with the the perfect little moment, you know, of of Carlisle saying when they're when they're caught in the bear trap together, if you die first, I'm gonna eat you. And the question is if you would do the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when we when we first meet John Spencer's character, I mean, one of the first things we see him do is moving all of this fancy furniture into his new office. And if that doesn't mm-hmm. speak to that that tension between the individual and the institutional and how greed sort of supersedes both of those, like that's a perfect mm-hmm. moment. That tells you everything you need to know about the kind of systems that are going to be portrayed in this movie. Because yeah, like mm-hmm. John Spencer's character is in it for him. He has that great line where he intentionally mispronounces Wendigo just to prove a point. Like it's it's <laughs> this is this is what they're up against. And this is what they're what I mean, Guy Pierce's character is trying to save, question mark, I guess. It's interesting, too, to ponder the idea of morality in a landscape like this. And, you know, not to be melodramatic, but something I ponder myself, like living in 2021 as an American constantly, because, you know, we're meant to understand Guy Pierce's character for all intents and purposes as a moral center, sort of a proxy for the audience, I guess, right? Like what we're supposed to feel and think and believe to be true to a certain extent. But, you know, this movie didn't necessarily give me a satisfactory answer in the realm of dismantling a system as carnal and and violent and gluttonous as the one that we're up against in the movie. Because not unlike our... <laughs> our current political landscape there's no there's no alternative there's no sort of imagination of something different mm-hmm. it's just i need to not be that thing i need to not do the terrible thing that you're doing and i kind of i kind of appreciated that it was it was an unsatisfactory resolution to a certain extent because i think that feels more realistic i think that feels more like the solutions, finger quotes, that we're often met with, you know, to answer these questions. And while I do feel like there are things about Guy Pierce's character that I could align with sort of morally and emotionally, I also found myself doing the same with Carlisle's character and a, and a lot of other people in the movie as well. And I think that's what's so complicated about being a person who exists in a settler colonialist uh, capitalist society is that, you know, you're participating in it to survive, whether you agree with the politics and the way that society is organized or not. And it, it means that there are a lot of impetuses uh, and sort of questions that I'm left with where I'm like, is that a thing I really want? Or, you know, Mm -hmm. am I just saying that because I need to pay rent and I live in San Francisco, you know, there, there are all kinds of questions like that. And I appreciated that I at least didn't find myself thinking Carlisle's character bad, Guy Pierce's character good. Right. It's sort of it's very messy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Pierce's character is is a bit of a blank slate, and that really stood out on a rewatch for me. Yeah. There is not he he can be such a dynamic, you know, charismatic presence in film, you know, from everything from the proposition to LA Confidential on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a film where he is playing it a lot more subdued and a lot more blank. It's a lot easier to sort of pit him as this amorphous thing that is, you know. Literally, his his moral center is like shit's fucked, but maybe literally eating people is like a little too far. That's about what he brings <laughs> to the table as life. a character, and that's not a particularly great line to draw. But it's the line that he 
is prepared to stand for. And, and you're right. It does. It means that there's a lot of, there's a lot in this movie that is just sort of like a grand shrug of how all of this is meant to shake out or what we're supposed to take away from the way the characters interact. But I, I, the more, I guess maybe the older I get, the more that I like that. I like that Guy Pierce is not going to stand up and give a speech or make a decision. He's just sort of along for the ride until at which point he isn't. And his greatest act, his greatest act of rebellion is to just die. Like that's the, that's the best thing that he does in the movie. That's the biggest moral stand he takes is to just let himself die at the very end. Spoilers if you're still listening. Um, So that's, and that to me, that's fascinating because that's not, there is no Western in which, you know, there are Westerns where you sacrifice yourself, but just letting your life drip away because the alternative is worse is, is such a, that's that's a murky and confusing ending, and I love it for that. Yes. No, it's brilliant. It's you know, I was gonna say when Carly was, you know, discussing if if there's any overt answers here or any conclusions being drawn, and it's like the closest thing we get here is that, you know, self martyrdom may be the only real out in this system, and and you know, and and killing yourself, you know, that that as you said, Matt, is the ultimate act of rebellion is choosing simply not to participate and then just die. But that's the thing, like what Matt's saying, it's not even martyrdom. It's Mm -hmm. not even an agent act. It's very passive. Right. And it's not even like collective, uh, collective response. It's not defeating anything. It's just trying to, to withdraw and, and, and remove something, remove an element from, from the world. And we see at the end that he is ultimately unsuccessful. You know, John Mm -hmm. Spencer, uh, his character, uh, Solson, I, th- I think is his name, right? S- sipping on the man still, you know, <laughs> like he, like this, this thing, this drive, this, this carnal hunger and, and lust for flesh remains, you know, so long as, as the idea is in the world, so long as like the actual physical thing is there. So too is the hunger. Yeah. It's <laughs> self-perpetuating. Yeah. And it, I mean, it is very vampiric in that way, right? It, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, kind of this almost sort of parasitic thing where as soon as it's in you, it's in you and you have the power to pass it on as well. Um, yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's very bleak, but it, it's certainly in line and, and congruent with a lot of these movies in the late nineties that we talked about where, you know, the fabric is starting to tear a little bit and people are starting to kind of get a glimpse backstage of, of all of these levers of power, you know, this, this sort of end of history moment that we had at the beginning of the decade that, that we were told is is it we have it all figured out everything is great now there is no future beyond this all of a sudden that simulation is starting to glitch and the the film here certainly spends some time playing with that idea you know and and not just saying you know the system is the center is not holding but simply that the center was never there to begin with you know like like there 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 this idea of the fabric of morality and society was built on the same violence and and on the same the same cannibalizing of of our of our resources of our people um that it always has been it it's this sort of you know eternal eternal quality of the american way and that's probably why i love historical period horror as much as because it gets to talk about the contemporary but it doesn't have to answer any of its own questions so something mm-hmm. like this can basically toe right up against the line and being like, Hey, look at the world around you. But you know, I don't have, we don't have to resolve this in a contemporary setting. So we can just kill off a bunch of our characters and let you fill in the dots from there. But I also think that your point about Guy Pierce's character's response really being just to sort of let himself die, to allow himself to waste away. 
is also at the same time like a pretty pointed indictment I'm taking it to be of your options you know mm. when up against uh this system like I actually appreciate you know we've talked about when we've discussed other movies from 1999 specifically that they are uh exploring this idea of a kind of ambient anxiety as we approach the millennium but not really able to articulate where that anxiety is coming from or offer a solution or an idea of what something else might be or how you know a different society might might look but i wouldn't level that same argument at this movie because i actually find this movie to be almost more revolutionary in the fact that it confronts you with the fact that we don't have answers like no one's giving us answers and in when we turn back you know to our real lives and we're sort of meant to make sense of a system that's really violent and all-consuming and we so frequently both from from a systemic level and also from an individual standpoint kind of come up short with what to do about that mm -hmm. The thing that separates it from so many of the other films of this era, I think, is that it correctly diagnoses the problems. So many of these films that are, you know, sort of more mainstream are are dealing with the anxiety or dealing with this sort of like nascent fear and, and feeling of something being wrong and not able to put their finger on what it is. And so they create these antagonizing forces that are either, you know, fictionalized, fantasized, or they're you know, tacking it up to uh, the fact that, you know, uh, kids are dying their hair now or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Like like too many of these movies are doing that. And this one actually gets it pretty much spot on and, and is able to sort of understand more intrinsically what what's going on here and what we're feeling and where the anxiety is coming from, even if it's not able to offer a satisfying solution to it. It's at least letting you know that thing you're feeling can be explained yeah it's it's not just you know that it's real and we acknowledge that but that that it that it actually has real driving forces behind it yeah and you don't have agency in mm -hmm. this system you just your only option out of it is to just let yourself waste away eat or die <laughs> basically yeah <laughs> Yeah, basically, that's, yeah. That's kind of a somber note. I'm not going to end there. I, I do want to talk no, a little bit I, about. <laughs> I don't think it's a somber note. This movie was like so energizing. Mm -hmm. it, it's one of those films that, because I, f I was able to see so clearly, the indictment that we're talking about. I, I was able to, you know, experience it in all these ways. Like, I left myself like I left the movie like vibrating because of how much it stirred up and just how unflinching it is in its characterization and portrayal of um, the ideas that we're talking about. Yeah, it is not It is not a dour or depressing film. It's not a film no. that's going to leave you walking away. You know, it is, it, it is not some two hour, two and a half hour long European art horror that basically just wants to drain the life out of you and make you confront the fact that everything is meaningless. Um, there is, there is, like you said, there's a, there's a strong sense of energy. There's a strong sense of drive. It's cathartic in a way that's hard mm -hmm. to pinpoint, but it definitely is. Um, and it's just, it is fun. Um, and that's the black humor that kind of is woven throughout it. It's the performances, you know, this is, this is a film that the best movies are the ones, and this goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation. The best films are the one that can entertain and grapple kind of these issues. And 
without, you know, there, there are a lot of films, a lot of really great films that will deal with these issues of imperialism, colonialism, manifest destiny that talks about this stuff in a way that will, that will have kind of like the same resonance, but they don't have that stickiness that something that is genre, that is mass audience, that is fun. Um, you know, they're not something you can go to your friend and be like, Hey, I just watched a documentary from the 1970s about like the way that indigenous tribes were being treated. Do you want to watch that? And they're like, absolutely right. not. And you're like, cool. At least I tried, <laughs> but I understand where you're coming from. But I can go to my friends and I can say, hey, watch Ravenous. And they'll walk away and they'll understand because I'm going to tell them it's a vampire cannibalism movie that takes place in the West. That'll hook them. They'll see it. Mm-hmm. Those themes, those concepts and ideas will resonate with them. And they'll go tell their people too and tell their friends that it's worth watching. So it is the hardest thing in the world to make important ideas also entertaining. And when a film mm-hmm. does that right, it is that that's that is an all-timer. It's a canon type movie, which is this one does that right. It walks that line. It makes it entertaining and it doesn't lose sight of the issues that it wants to play with too. Completely. Couldn't agree more. It actually, you know, looking at the response to this film in the era, because it, it did not do well commercially. <laughs> um, not even big, a little big bit, time, no. Yeah, big time <laughs> bomb, kind of, you know, for, lost to time a little bit. Um, of course, there are people who are, are, you know, bearing the torch and making sure that the light never goes out like you, Matt. Mm-hmm. But I, I think about the response to that film compared to something like uh, like Get Out, which is, I, I think, doing a, a, a very good job of the same kind of thing, right? Presenting a very entertaining film, has these elements of, of you know, classic horror genres to it, is playing with, you know, a, a, a socio-political kind of statement here and, and getting its message across very clearly, but has this massive populist appeal. And just thinking about the success of a film like that in our era and, uh, and the way that I think that this one was unfortunately maligned and, and overlooked, uh, the, the contrast is very stark to me. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of things that sort of separate those two, right? Like there were a lot of really, really talented black film critics and audience members that took it out and ran with it. And basically were like right out of the gate, like this is why this movie matters. So it mm-hmm. had sort of like an infrastructure of education tied to its release that allowed people like white audiences that might not have quite understood the satire, quite understood the jokes. Like that lifting was there. People had done the work to make sure people understood why it can now be a running joke when people are like, oh, get out, you know, like the white liberal and get out. Like we understand that now, but there is an element of that was explained to us by the black film critics that were able to say like, here's where this is placed in in Hollywood history because Ravenous is such a flop. Like nobody was doing that work, right? They're really, Mm. there's not a lot of people that are going out there and being like, oh, hey, this movie, let's, let's talk about what manifest destiny means. But, you know, this, Fortunately, I think this is that kind of film too, where everything that makes it tough to, or like confusing upon its initial appeal, uh, especially for audiences in 1999. I mean, this movie was released two months before Star Wars, right? Star Wars episode one, which basically, Mm -hmm. you know, the way that we think about blockbuster filmmaking changed again. It moved away from like digital effects was everything. High tech, you wanted green screens, like the mode of consumption for cinema changed at that point. And so this is kind of, one teetering on the precipice of an entire new way of filmmaking that doesn't leave a lot of room for like period, you know, clothed and horses kind of horror. Mm -hmm. But I think because, because it's a film that's so uncompromising because it was like so much went wrong that there wasn't the opportunity to kind of water down a lot of the messaging or the music or the performances. They just kind of did what they wanted to do. That's always the stuff that takes a little bit longer to resonate. You know, they made the movie they wanted to make and the studio had no idea what they were doing. Um, and it kind of, it all kind of works out to a certain extent. So there, there are just some films, I think that 
especially the deeper you go into horror as a genre, the more you get away from sort of the safe middle ground where mass audiences are like, and get out. I don't want to, people that say get out isn't a horror movie drive me crazy. Get out is very clearly a horror movie. It's not a thriller or anything else you want to call it. But I would say that it is, it is sort of in that middle realm of acceptable horror where mass audiences will still go see it because it's just comfortable enough. It's not too violent. It's not too gross. They'll give it a chance in the way that I think something like Ravenous wouldn't. And it's been my experience that whenever whenever you go directly into horror, whenever you veer hard into that, sometimes it just takes people to catch up. It's why John Carpenter, you know, plays his video games now and watches the NBA and doesn't want to do anything with filmmaking because like for 20 <laughs> years, that was brutal for him that he was making these types of films and audiences just weren't showing up for it. So I'm, you know, thankfully everybody involved went on to have pretty good careers. So none of them were hurting for work. This wasn't a career ending thing by any means for the people involved, but it's, it's special for the people that like it because it took that little bit of extra energy to get there. And if I could go back in time and if I could give it sort of a contextual, an audience contextualization, like a get out and ensure that people would be, you know, loving it in 1999 on the gate. Hell yeah, I definitely do that. I'm not so arrogant mm -hmm. in my love of ravenous that I, that it's mine and I don't want to share it with anybody. So yeah, if there was, if there's a chance to go back in time and, and, and kind of write the wrong of this release, you know, I would be happy about that. But I think, I think people got there eventually and I think people are there now. And the fact that I can show it to folks that are by their own admission, not horror fans. And they're like, this movie clicked. Like, I think that means that, that this is going to only continue and continue to build in the years to come. I sure hope so. There's part of me that wonders if, you know, this is also a very, very sensitive territory for Americans to explore. There's a lot of white guilt, right. That sort of propels, popular culture, I think, to uh, be more prone to receive the ideas and the conversations coming out of a movie like Get Out, which also, as you said, is still packaged in a way that is relatively comfortable for everyone involved versus, and I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but, you know, we still have a really hard time looking at American, American, America's establishment as a country and sort of what it took to do all of that looking at that in a way that is, you know, has sort of like a, a clarion vision of, of what actually took place. And so there's part of me that wonders too, if it's, this is also just really, really like verboten territory, I think for a mass audience to explore and sit with. And I hope that that's not the case. And mm -hmm. I think you're right. There's certainly seems to be, um, as you've said, more people sort of really loving this movie and, and the fact that we're talking about it is a testament to the fact that it's it itself is having its own manifest destiny. <laughs> yeah, and I think I love I love what you said about kind of like the way that we look back and our, our hesitation there because I think I think that is true and I think there's also kind of like a less nefarious version of that which is just like we want to you know as a country we want to push boundaries when we want to see where the next border is and so westerns there's nothing left to explore. So Westerns is a genre, mm -hmm. like who cares? We've already done that. We've got Sea to Shining Sea, like it's ours yeah. um, for right or wrong. And I think that what we've seen more of over the last you know, 20 years is science fiction kind of step into that gap of like, what are, where mm -hmm. are the new boundaries? Where are the borders of our society, of, of humanity and where can we push them? And I, I don't know, I, as, uh, to go back to the Taylor Sheridan piece, I think there's a lot of juice left in Westerns. I think there's a lot that yeah. we can still do. And I hope that I hope that people will never lose appreciation of them because then Ravenous will be there for them when they're ready. Mm, yes, yeah, absolutely. I could not agree more with you about it. I, I, I do not want the Western and, and the 
carrying on of that genre to be squarely on Taylor Sheridan's shoulders. Yes, yes, so, please, so no, please. as much as, uh, you know, I think that he's a, he's a, a very intelligent screenwriter, you know, he's, he's a, a pretty good director himself in his own right too. And, um, you know, I, I haven't seen his, his new film yet with, with Angelina Jolie, but um, look forward to it when I do. Yeah. I, there's, there's so much to say here. Um, and in terms of it, you know, not being any more about the expansion of the extension of, of, humanity of civilization of 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 our progress but what we've been talking about that that kind of inward reflection Mm -hmm. and 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 that that moment to ruminate on it and to really kind of see what was this thing that we did what was it really like you know instead of the mythos and and the 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 tale we tell ourselves about it Mm -hmm. and you know i mean interesting too that yeah i there are so many actors here who went on to do and 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 retread uh, the Western genre, you know, I, I, the first time I saw pro- the proposition, you know, as, as a high schooler, I guess, you know, or uh, early college, whenever that was when it came out um, and thought, man, Guy, Guy Pierce is really good in a Western. How come no one's ever done this before? Turns out, oh, here we go. Here's mm-hmm. Ravenous. Um, I mean, even Jeffrey Jones, you know, like, as we said, problematic figure, but really, really great in Deadwood. He was auditioning for Deadwood in this movie. I'm convinced of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, he did a great job at it. And I was like, he's really good in this sort of period setting. Why has no one ever done this before? Turns out they had. Even David Arquette, you know, is not someone who immediately clicks. And I saw him in Bone Tomahawk and was like, what a weird place for him to be. And it makes so much more sense when you see him in Ravenous. And, and you know, as, as, as brief and as small as his, his part is, he, he works in that role. Yeah, all, I mean, all this to say, I'm glad that these guys are still interested in this genre. I'm glad that the genre is still alive. And I think, as you said, lot, lots to juice from it still. I'm mm-hmm. forever indebted to you to for bringing it to us. Truly, it's one of the best films I've seen in so long. This is this is all I wanted to hear. I'm so excited at y'all's enthusiasm. <laughs> I'm really, really happy that I was able to bring this film to two more people that really appreciate it. So um show it to show it to family members make them sit through it awkwardly when it doesn't resonate for them in the same way that does for you <laughs> lord knows i've been there um but give it a shot you never know maybe 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 yeah. it'll click and you know as limited as our audience is there are some people out there i'm sure who have never never seen this film or heard of it too watch it it's so worth it it's it's an incredible incredible experience like we said not not dour um, just really energizing, really riveting stuff. And, and it's, it's just such a, a brisk and, and energetic and, and energizing watch. Um, so yes, Matt, thank you so much for bringing it to us. Thank you for being a guest on the show and for going along with us as well. You have been uh, just an absolute pleasure to, to hang out with. Oh, it's my pleasure. I don't, you know, I, I've never had a chance to sit down and talk about this movie in the way that I wanted to. So thank you guys for giving me that opportunity. This has been a lot of like a lot of love for this film has flown back over the last couple of days. And I just, you know, I'm working on getting my first tattoo and I decided kind of around the same time we were doing here that it was going to be ravenous themed. So this is just, this is a very good, been a very good year for me and ravenous and remembering why I loved it in the first place. I love that so much. You're not, are are you going to get just a big red cross on your forehead, Matt? I thought about it. Wasn't really sure that my workplace would allow it. They did recently change their tattoo policy, but I don't believe it was that aggressive. So (laughs) <laughs> well oh, i'm man. excited for you to show off that artwork whenever it it comes to fruition i love it um i think that that is a good place to wrap again watch ravenous please if you do nothing else this weekend this week watch it if you have two things to do this weekend watch it twice if you have the room for it um yeah just just a, a phenomenal phenomenal film Thank and you truly again. matt is uh 
fully manifesting you're fully manifesting the um certified forgotten ethos yep that's what yep. i'm here for even when i'm not at my happening. site i'm i'm here to i'm here to share movies that other people haven't watched that's yes that's that's what's fun about this as always uh you can follow us hit factory pod across social platforms uh be sure to subscribe at patreon.com slash hit factory pod uh, follow matt follow matt as well Matt, you're on Twitter. What's what's your handle? Uh, my handle is Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. So great content there. Be sure to check out Certified Forgotten as well. Listen to it, read it. Um, the words are they're good words. You'll be they're good words. They're good it's words, good Brent. Words. They're oh, they're the best words. <laughs> you have some of the best words, Matt. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> shout out to our capitalist overlord, Linda, and uh, we will uh, catch you next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. So